This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Dan Taylor, a professor of accounting at Wharton. We are speaking with him about his research on undisclosed investigations by the Securities and Exchange Commission. This research was conducted in collaboration with professors at Oregon State University, Stanford University, and the University of Washington. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Happy to be here. So, uh, to begin, uh, what prompted your study on undisclosed investigations by the SEC? So, uh, two two main events, I would say, prompted uh, prompted the research. Um, in January, back in January of 2016, uh, the Southern District of New York had a case in front of it, um, Lionsgate Entertainment, and um, that case went all the way through the through the court system. And the the ruling out of that case was that corporations are not under any obligation to disclose SEC investigations or uh, receipt of a Wells notice, where a Wells notice basically tells the corporation that you know the SEC is likely, not always, but likely to uh, to enforce against them. Uh, the court held um, that the defendants did not have a duty to disclose the SEC investigation Wells notices, quote because the security laws do not impose an obligation on a company to predict the outcome of investigations. There is no duty to disclose litigation that did not substantially occur. Uh, and so that was kind of surprising to me because, you know, I, I work in, in accounting and finance and economics, sort of the intersection of those areas. And we teach the students all the time that materiality is about whether a reasonable person would alter their valuation of the firm or their investing decision on the basis of the information. And so, for example, in accounting, we record, you know, uncertain uh, uncertainty about negative events all the time, even though they haven't actually happened. So, for example, uh, banks will typically make an allowance for loan losses or an allowance for doubtful accounts, uh, even though, you know, the loans haven't actually defaulted. They'll, they'll provide an accounting contingency for that. We have loss contingencies related to litigation, environmental issues, et cetera. So I was surprised that in the case, the, the the Southern District of New York seemed to set the bar to when there's only actual uh, enforcement. Um, and I think that's at odds of how we typically think in economics about materiality. And so that kind of got me thinking, hmm, you know, this is kind of an interesting case where the bar for disclosure is different than what we typically see in other accounting and finance settings. And then recently, back in November, um, the Wall Street Journal broke the news that the SEC was investigating Under Armour's accounting practices and that Under Armour had, in fact, been cooperating for two and a half years but had not disclosed that investigation or that cooperation to, to shareholders. And so on the day that the Wall Street Journal broke the news, um, Under Armour's prices fell 19 percent on the story. So clearly the market thought you know, the investigation was sufficiently material uh, to alter valuation and by a substantial amount. And so this got me thinking, my co-authors thinking, you know, what is the frequency uh, with which firms are actually not disclosing these investigations? If the Wall Street Journal didn't break that, uh, didn't break that story, would Under Armour have eventually disclosed it or would shareholders, you know, never ever learn about the uh, investigation unless it actually led to an enforcement action? So if... The next question is, is, 
if the company has an ongoing SEC investigation and chooses not to disclose it, which you know they're not obligated to, do they also not trade uh, on that information? So if the firm chooses not to disclose the investigation and the investigation is material, that potentially means that uh, insiders are, have an information advantage over uh, shareholders, normal shareholders. And so we typically think that fiduciary duty compels uh, managers to either disclose the information or abstain from trading. So they're not required to disclose. Okay, next question, do they abstain, abstain from trading? And I think when we started the research, we didn't quite appreciate how topical and how relevant and how <laughs> far-reaching it was. Um, just uh, just yesterday, Thursday, uh, February 13th, Tesla disclosed it received an SEC subpoena back on December 4th from the SEC, and, and it was cooperating with the SEC in their investigation. So that puts about a two-month gap between when Tesla was hit with the subpoena for the record and when it disclosed the subpoena. So the natural question is whether the investigation is material. We don't necessarily know yet. Insiders at Tesla might, but outsiders don't. And given the disclosure occurred February 13th and the subpoena was back in December, did any insiders at Tesla trade in the intervening period between when they learned of the subpoena and when they disclosed it? So it's very, very topical and, and, uh, and touches a lot of different companies out there right now. Now, considering the SEC is so highly secretive uh, when a company is being investigated, uh, how challenging was it to gather all the information that you needed, and how did you go about gathering the data? So it's a great question. I think that you know this paper really relies uh, more so than most papers on the data that we that the SEC provided to us. Um, so the uh, SEC investigations are sort of shrouded in secrecy. Right? The SEC doesn't comment on ongoing investigations. Only the, the firm being investigated, the firm's counsel, and the SEC and investigators are aware of the investigation. And, you know, as we just talked about, the firm doesn't have any obligation to, to disclose that investigation. So prior work typically only observed investigations when the firm disclosed it or when enforcement was brought. So you couldn't observe the instances of SEC investigations that were undisclosed. So we wanted to actually figure out what fraction of firms had undisclosed investigations. So this presents a challenge because the firm isn't disclosing it. The SEC may not be enforcing it. So how do we uncover these undisclosed investigations? So over the course of six months, um, uh, one of my co-authors went back and forth with the SEC foying for information on closed investigations. So not open investigations, but closed investigations. And as a process of that back and forth with the SEC, we negotiated with them to release, through a Freedom of Information Act, um, data on all closed formal SEC investigations between 2000 and uh, 2017. So it's about a decade and a half, you know, uh, 17, 18 years of data on who the SEC has been formally investigating. One, one quick follow-up on that. Mm -hmm. uh, very often I have heard that the SEC and a company might just settle an investigation with neither with the company not, not accepting or denying mm -hmm. uh, responsibility right. just as a way to settle it. Did you your data include those kinds of cases as well? Yes. So the data includes everyone that is investigated regardless of the outcome. 
I see. So if Very the if it doesn't go to the court, if it doesn't go to enforcement, we still observe it. Right. If they close the investigation without taking any action, we still observe it. So in some sense, we observe the master list of those individuals and entities that were formally investigated by the SEC. Right. And uh, the key adjective there is formally investigated. Um, the SEC has many different scopes of investigation, um, matter under inquiry being one that's not formal. Uh, a formal investigation implies uh, subpoena power by the SEC. So we wanted to focus on instances in which you know things are actually serious enough to warrant uh, to warrant subpoenas, and that that data basically entailed 299 pages of records of those individuals and entities, more than 12,000 invest 12,000 plus investigations um, that the SEC uh, undertook over that over that 17 18 year period. And so now we know who the SEC was investigating over the period, independent of the outcome of the investigation and independent of whether the firm uh, whether the firm disclosed it. Uh, could you talk us through some of the main takeaways or findings from your research? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, we got the, the SEC turned over 299 pages of records to us uh, across uh, over 12,000 investigations. Um, now, the, the bulk of those investigations are not against publicly traded entities. They're against individuals, broker-dealers, um, you know, the investigations for Ponzi schemes, for non-publicly traded entities, all sorts of, you know, uh, investigations out there. One of the fun aspects of working on this this paper is, is that almost every one of the observations is a story uh, because it all, they all have backstories about what's being investigated, who's being investigated, why they're being investigated. So when we took the 12,000-plus investigations and then we focused on those entities that are uh, traded on the three major exchanges, the NYSE, the NASDAQ, and the AMEX. And that got us down to just under 4,000 investigations from 2000 to 2017 against publicly traded entities um, on the three major exchanges. So the first thing we did once we had the set is look at what fraction of those firms that are under investigation, under a formal investigation, actually disclose the investigation and the timing of that disclosure. And so what we found is that about 19 to 20% of firms disclose some sort of SEC investigation within 10 days of the investigation open. So uh, by day plus 10 after the investigation open, 20% of firms have been forthcoming and said, look, the SEC is looking into something. They're not necessarily detailed, but at least some evidence of disclosure. Interestingly, um, just under 50% of firms disclose the investigations eventually. So there is a large <laughs> chunk of investigations that go undisclosed by, by the firm, which as we talked about sort of earlier, that's, that's allowed under – seems to be allowed. You know, we can disagree whether it should be allowed or not, but that seems to be you know, sort of allowed under – uh, under law. And so the next question is, okay, now that we know that a substantial chunk of investigations are undisclosed, you know, let's look at who's actually being under investigation. So one thing, the first thing we looked at uh, was industry distribution. And so it looks like the uh, distribution of industries that the SEC tends to investigate lines up pretty well with the distribution of industries across the three major exchanges. So you don't see the SEC uh, investigating disproportionately into any one any one industry. Uh, the next thing we did is we looked at the distribution of size, the company size. And so there we found something pretty interesting. 
uh, 20% of the SEC's investigations tend to target the largest 10% of firms. Now, I actually found that very surprising because I was my, – my beliefs coming into this was that potentially – you know, the largest 10% of firms are going to have the most well-resourced defense teams and, you know, going to be the most experienced. And so this suggests that that, that does not – the SEC doesn't shy away from taking on, um, you know, the those firms that can mount potentially the best defenses. Um, it also is consistent with the notion that the SEC targets those firms that have the largest scope of malfeasance. So if you're a large firm and you have – potentially have a fraud, sort of there's likely going to be larger damages and more harm done. And so potentially that's something that goes into the SEC's uh, uh, decision to investigate uh, larger, uh, larger firms. And so conversely, very few investigations occur in the, in, the smallest, in the smallest firms. And then we looked at future performance. So there's this question of, okay, we have this investigation data. The, the investigations are undisclosed. Well, are, are the investigations in fact material? So we're going to try and get at that by looking at what happens to the firm over the course of the investigation. And so what we found is is that one year after the investigation is opened, the median investigated firm underperforms the market by about 6%. Hmm. And two years later, it underperforms the market by about 10%. And that's the median. So what that means is that more than 50% of investigation, investigated firms have declines in their stock price even larger than uh, the 10% market adjusted after two years. Um, we found also that the investigations tend to uh, tend to foreshadow drops in the firm's uh, earnings and increases in stock price volatility. So the, the results of the stock price performance and uh, operating performance suggest that the the investigations are economically material uh, in the sense that if you knew that the firm was under investigation, if you knew that and you sold your shares immediately upon learning that, you would have avoided you know, significant losses across the entire sample. Now, this doesn't mean that every investigation is material. Okay? There could certainly be immaterial investigations, but the majority of the investigations in the sample – the majority of those 4,000 or so investigations do appear to be clearly uh, economically material events. Yeah, I, that, that sounds really interesting, uh, Dan. Uh, but let's, let's d- dr- drill a little deeper. Uh, so as your paper says, uh, senior managers or insiders of the company that is being investigated uh, learn about the investigation sooner than the uh, outside investors. Uh, how does this insider knowledge influence their behavior? Uh, and do insiders actually exploit this advanced knowledge and trade based on their access to this confidential information? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. You know, one can view this, this research as having four effective steps to it. Step one is you know, acquire data from the SEC on who they have investigated um, regardless of whether the firm discloses it or the SEC discloses it. So acquire data on undisclosed investigations. Uh, well, all investigations, I should say. Next, step two is what percentage of firms actually disclosed. So look at the rate of disclosure uh, of these of all of the investigations. Step three is then to establish whether the investigations are in fact material. So we know for a large number, they're undisclosed. The natural question is, is of these undisclosed investigations, are they economically material? All right, so we've established vast majority undisclosed. 
we've established vast majority economically material. Step four is if it's undisclosed and it's material, do insiders abstain from trading? So fiduciary duty compels insiders to either disclose material information or abstain or abstain from trading. And we've established that disclosure isn't necessarily necessarily, I should underscore that again, required in this in this setting. So among those firms that do not disclose, we then look at whether the insiders, in fact, trade. And uh, the answer to that is yes, they do appear to, to be trading um, during the course of the, uh, of the investigation. So now we have not only that the investigation is undisclosed, that the investigation is material, but that insiders don't seem to be abstaining from trading during the period of the, during the, period of the investigation. And so that's really interesting because what it suggests is, is it suggests, you know, there's some, some gray area um, as to legality here and the gray area as to, you know, whether we should even be, you know, whether we should even be allowing that to occur. You know, it doesn't appear that companies are locking down and preventing their insiders from trading during the investigation. Now, one thing I think it's important to point out is that it's not necessarily the individual being investigated who's doing the trading. So you can imagine certain individuals at the firm learning that one of their uh, colleagues is being investigated by the SEC for, say, accounting fraud or foreign corrupt practices or some you know, bad behavior. It's those other individuals who aren't actually the subject of the investigation that are the ones that sort of were interested in their trading behavior. Um, and so it, it's those other individuals that aren't necessarily engaged in the underlying action that led to the investigation that appear to be trading once they learn that one of their colleagues or you know some division of the firm is uh, is being investigated. Were any of them penalized for insider trading? So good question. So um, there are cases obviously in which executives who are engaging in fraud, you know, uh, start cashing out, and the SEC is quite good at catching those. You know, because if they're investigating for accounting fraud, they're looking at incentives to do so, and one of the incentives is to inflate stock price to, you know, to, to cash out the shares. But then the next question is, is well, what about the lower-level employees? What about some of the other insiders who the SEC isn't necessarily investigating for the accounting fraud, but once they learned that the CEO or the CFO was being charged, start sort of selling their shares? And that's sort of what our research is diving into. It suggests that you know there needs to be a better job, both of firms and the SEC, of monitoring what we call incidental trading in firms that are that are being investigated by by the SEC. Based on everything you've said so far, uh, what are the implications of your research for managers, for regulators, and for investors? Right, uh, great question again. Um, so. You know, the first thing is is that um, the SEC should be examining insider trading during the course of investigations, even if the investigation itself is unrelated to insider trading. Uh, for example, the SEC might serve a subpoena for bribing a foreign official, a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violation, um, and individuals privy to the subpoena at the firm may take that opportunity to liquidate some of their shares even though those individuals had nothing to do with the, uh, with the original offense, with the original bribe. And so our, 
our findings suggest that you know the SEC should be monitoring for insider trading even when the investigation doesn't necessarily relate to that or doesn't necessarily relate to uh, to accounting fraud. Um, what our findings do not speak to is we have not examined um, trading in the say in the options market or uh, hedge funds or you know all uh, trading by outside parties. Um, we don't seem to find any evidence of abnormal trading in the market on the firm shares in the NYSE, the NASDAQ, or the AMEX. Um, but one thing that the SEC, I think, should be doing is looking to looking at trading during periods of investigations um, because that provides an opportunity, obviously, if the investigation is material uh, for, for insiders, either corporate insiders or um, insiders at the law firm that's, that's helping the firm. Uh, provides them with the opportunity to potentially trade profitably. With respect to... Um, Managers and and the firm itself, you know, I, I think the 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 implication here is is pretty clear. You know, boards and general counsels need to really lock down the trading of anyone involved with ongoing regulatory investigations, um, uh, and you know, comport with sort of best practices. Now, this isn't a question of legality. So one would say, well, oh, it may not technically be legal. This is a question of corporate governance, of best practices. If there are executives at the firm that know that their division is under investigation by the SEC or subpoenas are coming out, and that has a potential to turn bad, then you know, good corporate governance best practice would be to prevent those individuals as the GC or the board to say, you know, okay, if we're not going to disclose this information to shareholders, then you know, we really need to stop these in- corporate insiders uh, uh, from trading. And we don't really seem to be seeing this played out, um, uh, or what I should say is we seem to be seeing notable exceptions to this. Um, you know, so when Boeing was under investigation um, for you know issues related to uh, to its uh, 737 Max, did it clamp down on uh, the trading of its if its insiders? Um, there are other examples out there. Um, I have a, a, I've done related research on product recalls. You know, do does the firm clamp down on the trading of insiders um, while it's investigating for product defects and product recalls? Um, and so there there really needs to be a, a recognition that there are other things other than accounting information and 10Ks and 8Ks that can be material information that would warrant the GC to sort of uh, – uh, lock down the trading uh, of corporate insiders. And, you know, we see this, you know, there are many, many examples of this. Um, you know, one of the popular examples now making its way through the courts is, you know, CBS. And um, uh, Les Moonves was, you know, investigated as part of the Me Too movement. The board seemed to be aware of this prior to the public knowing. And so, you know, litigants have alleged that, you know, the board knew about this, traded in the intervening period, uh, you know, before the disclosure. And so that would be another case where the board knows about a, an investigation, even if not from the SEC, you know, from uh, the Department of Justice, from the FBI, from police, you know, or from other regulators. And uh, and there I think the board and the GC really need to, you know, sort of uh, up their game and clamp down on trading. Based on your research, again, do you think that the rules of disclosure should be modified? And if so, how? Well, so, you know, one can think about should we make it mandatory for the firms to disclose any uh, any investigations, and you know that's certainly one one path to go down. There, you know, I I don't think the evidence is cl- is necessarily clear that we should require all investigations to be disclosed. You know, 
the evidence suggests there are, you know, not all investigations, but many investigations are immaterial. You know, they, they end sort of uh, rather relatively quickly. You know, you don't want to require disclosure of things because you, you might have an issue where investors may overreact to the disclosure of what might be an immaterial investigation. Um, and so for me, I don't think there's necessarily implications for whether we should require disclosure of these investigations. Um, but I absolutely think that the insiders, if the investigation is not disclosed, the insider should be abstaining from trading. I mean, the evidence, that's sort of an open and shut case for me, especially in the investigations we found that are material. And so I think the most surprising aspect was of the paper was that there are a substantial fraction of firms that aren't disclosing the investigation, where the investigation is material, and where managers are not abstaining from trading in the intervening period between when, the investiga- when, the, when they receive the subpoena and when the subpoena or the investigation becomes disclosed. Um, and so you know, it, the, the evidence suggests that in the absence of disclosure, uh, managers aren't abstaining from trading and instead seem to be potentially you know, profiting handsomely for their intervening trades, right? So imagine a scenario in which your firm has been served a subpoena. You know, the firm doesn't disclose it for another six months. If it's a very material investigation, that gives you potentially a six-month window to begin liquidating your shares before that information hits, hits the market. You may have incentives to liquidate even if you are not the person who engaged in the fraud or the underlying bad activity in the first place. And so in the paper, we actually calculate um, uh, some statistics for how large are the losses investors – or not investors – how large losses insiders are able to avoid – and what we find is that by selling at the outset of the investigation when you know they first learn of it, they're able to avoid losses in excess of 15% over a six-month period. So that's only six months after the investigation starts. Wow. Um, and so you know, it, that to us suggests that it appears you know, that the GCs and the boards really need to step up their game uh, in terms of clamping down on trading by those who are aware of investigations into their uh, into their firms. And, you know, the, the large losses is, is, you know, substantial. It's kind of eye-opening. Uh, but it is intuitive when you walk through, the SEC is investigating you for something, you know, very bad. You now have a, a six-month window to sell your shares before that hits the news, right? And so when it hits the news, in the case of Under Armour, it went down, uh, you know, 19%. In the case of, you know, CBS with Les Moonves, you know, that went down a substantial amount to generate lawsuits. And so, you know, when one thinks, when one recognizes that the average investigation's material has a, you know, stock price drop of 10%, loss avoidance of 15% seems to be in line with, you know, with the notion that these investigations are in fact material. So Dan, what's the policy recommendation that follows from what you've just been saying? Uh, so I, I think here the recommendation is really for the SEC. I don't necessarily think it's a, a disclosure route. Um, you know, the SEC provided us with the data. They have even richer data, uh, key dates of the investigations. They know when the subpoenas are served, who they're served to, uh, you know, various points in times of the investigation, when they make their discoveries, when they uh, alert the board, when they alert certain managers. And so each one of those dates, I think, uh, the SEC, our research would say the SEC has sufficient grounds uh, to investigate trading of officers and directors at the firm. Uh, around those dates, and even potentially outsiders, um, the outside legal counsel, for example. 
So here the recommendation would be for the SEC to really drill down during each investigation, even if it's not an insider trading investigation, uh, to drill down, to look, to investigate insider trading in conjunction with the actual investigation. So look to see what are the outside law firm that's involved, there was trading there. Look to see where there's trading by lower level employees, uh, by officers and directors, you know, and and potentially come up with additional charges based on what they find. So whether they find that, uh, you know, one of the employees did, who was actually, you know, in charge of uh, delivering the subpoena, actually was one of the individuals who traded. And so I think with every investigation, the research suggests comes the opportunity for opportunistic trading. And so consequently, I, th I think the SEC has justification for uh, uh, investigating trading on every investigation that they open. Uh, what future research about SEC investigations do you plan to pursue based on what you've learned so far? Right. So I think, you know, getting the unique data from the SEC in terms of, um, you know, the total set of formal investigations over, you know, a decade and a half has really opened up some opportunities for future research, even moving beyond sort of insider trading. Is this that, you know, one can start to try and map out what are the enforcement preferences in some sense? Um, uh, who does the SEC seem to be, you know, tend to go after? Are there firm characteristics? Um, do they seem to respond to media articles? So if there's media articles that allege bad behavior, does that sort of trigger the open of, of an investigation? So what are the triggers, so to speak, of, of formal investigations that we could potentially map out from observable firm characteristics? So what characteristics of the firm that sort of uh, lead to a higher probability of an SEC investigation? And then, you know, we've also recently gotten data from the SEC on Wells notices. And um, Wells notices are sort of a an even stronger indicator of something coming down the down the pipeline than an undisclosed investigation. Uh, Wells notices are served to individuals and entities that the SEC is, you know, uh, has a very high likelihood of pursuing an enforcement action and provide the recipient with an opportunity to respond to the allegations before, you know, the case is actually brought. And so that speaks back to the Lionsgate ruling that sort of motivated this line of research and and there I think it's, you know, we're finding some evidence that Wells notices served against entities have a very high rate of enforcement, you know, certainly over 85 uh, percent of Wells served to companies get enforced. And so this is very, very, you know, this is most egregious. And so here again, because of that court ruling, are firms actually disclosing the Wells notices? And do we see trading in the intervening period between when they received the Wells notice and and uh, when they disclose the Wells notice. And here again, you know, what types we can ask. Now that we have the full set of Wells notices, what types of firms, you know, receive, tend to receive Wells notices and try and get a sense of, um, you know, the, the types of firms that, that may be uh, uh, heavily scrutinized by the, by the SEC. So I think there's lots of, lots of questions out there that are going to be coming, uh, coming down the pipeline now that the data is, is out there. So, uh, you know, readers and listeners should stay tuned for more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Dan, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.